Listening to Cinepunk Interactive Discussions for Film Lovers. This episode, The Trouble with Hitchcock. I'm Robert J. Simpson and I'm joined once again, you'll be pleased to know, by my erstwhile friend, colleague, creative collaborator, Dr. Rachel Kelly. Hello. You like Hitchcock? That's a complicated question. Isn't it? So, it's Hitchcock Day this week. Yay! Yay! If you're listening to it as this goes out. If you're not, it was Hitchcock Day some point recently, and it will be again, but you can always listen to this podcast. Um, so we thought we'd uh, address Hitchcock for Hitchcock Day, uh, the first of several podcasts we're probably going to do this year on the man himself. Um, but rather than do the usual stuff, we're going to concentrate on some of the more problematic aspects of Hitchcock's films. Are we? That sounds so unlike us. Apparently this is something we do. We've, it turns out this is something we do. We're developing a reputation for having difficult conversations and dismissing people whose work are sometimes great. But you, you do like Hitchcock as a rule. I do like Hitchcock. I don't think I've ever watched a Hitchcock film that I didn't thoroughly enjoy even while finding aspects of it intensely problematic. Um, it's a kind of a testament to how compelling uh, the images he puts together are, mm. that even when you have um, a narrative that has, oh dear me, all kinds of issues where you go, ah, don't do that. Uh, I'm Marnie, I'm looking at you. Yeah, so, I mean, the, even the, the narratives that make absolutely no sense at all. I mean, if you unpick Vertigo, for example, um, and yes, I realise that's tantamount to blasphemy, is regularly voted the best film of all times, and it's a great film. Mm. It's fantastic watch, you know, it just rollicks along. But, and the fact that it rollicks along means that you don't notice, if you, you don't have the time to stop and notice, actually none of this makes sense. Um so yeah, I've 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 me I've never met a Hitchcock film that didn't captivate me from start to finish. He's a master at what he does. Look, I mean, if you're going to ask me about if we have a pantheon of directors that uh, we should laud and look at, I agree with the Nouvelle Vague. Uh, I agree with a rare occasion we're going to re- agree with the likes of Truffaut and uh, Godard that Hitchcock is a director that is worth looking at and studying. Um, and there's definitely always something I get from his work. And I've been a fan from I was a young age. Um, but I thought that what we should probably look at today was the misogyny of Hitchcock. Yeah, I think that's definitely worth a look. So um, you may be aware, I mean, like Hitchcock and women have always been a slightly difficult subject anyway. But I think it really got exacerbated a few years ago when Tippi Hedren came out and said that Hitchcock essentially um, tried to rape her on set. Yeah, I mean, this is a story that has kind of been drawn into to kind of sharp focus with, with Hedron actually coming out and explicitly saying these are the things that happened. Mm. Um, Which then introdu- then resulted in the film Hitchcock Yes, with uh, Tony Hopkins. Um, and the girl. His name I can't remember. No, the girl, the film, the girl. Oh, the film, the girl? I haven't yeah. seen the girl. I haven't seen it either. Um, but oh. yes, it's based on uh, the Donald's photo book, which um, starts making these allegations. So to be fair, mm. um, Hedren coming out and talking about this explicitly um, a few years ago is is really kind of um, the, the 
sort of the confirmation of um, a lot of rumours that have been swirling around, rumours that I don't think Hitch himself really did much to dispel in terms, you know, he talks about um, actors are like cattle and, um, the, you know, the, the, the best thing an actor can do is absolutely nothing at all. So they're blank slates on which the director's will is imposed. Mm. Um, and there are all these stories that have been going around for years and years and years about how appallingly Hedron was treated on the set of The Birds, yeah. you know, where he's tethering live birds to her clothes and she's having her eye almost literally pecked out by a crazed bird um, and that fear in her face is real I mean that's that is Tippi Hedren actually genuinely terrified of these birds that are coming at her so these are rumours that um, didn't exactly come out of nowhere but what Hedren then did sort of uh, in that that's um, uh, a few years ago was that she came out and explicitly said that Hitchcock propositioned her um, on the set of Marnie, hmm. which is a film that has a lot of issues. Of, of all the films that you could choose <laughs> to sort of... all the films that you could choose to sexually harass somebody on the set of, Marnie is probably the most thematically consistent. Um, we think we should, I think we're going to talk a lot about Marnie. I just have this sense that we're going to talk a lot about Marnie today. Yeah. Um, but, um, and, and she alleges that... Um, when she turned him down, he ruined her career. Mm. Thereafter, she was under contract um, to to him and to his studio at this point, and he just refused to let her work to the point where other studios forgot about her. She was really sort of hot Hollywood property at this point, and by the time she was free of the contract, people had kind of the the, the heat had gone down, and she wasn't being get she wasn't being given offers anymore. So there are all of these rumours that have swirled around about him for, for years and years. And I mean, to be fair, that was met with a lot of pushback from other people who had worked with Hitchcock mm-hmm. um, throughout the years who'd said, this is not a man I recognise. Kind of carefully qualified with, yes, he could be difficult at times, or yes, you didn't always get, um, you know, the, the sort of the star treatment. Um, very carefully failing to say... He was abusive on set. But a lot of people have pushed back and gone, I don't recognise this guy that's being described here. So I think we have to be fair and say that, you know, these are allegations um, that could, we are not able to verify the truth or whatever of them. But this is something that Hedron has very explicitly come out and said, this is what happened to me. Mm. This is, I guess, one of the problems of the, the sort of the Me Too era as well, is that we have to be aware that sometimes an allegation is made and that there is... There are two sides to it, I guess. We have to we have to acknowledge that. Any kind of case, any allegation that's ever made, there there are two sides to it. And also it's possible for you to be completely nice to everybody else and be a complete monster to one individual. Agreed, yes. Th- those two yeah. things are not necessarily mutually exclusive. Yeah, so- I mean, I think we do have to be very careful um, to, to sort of differentiate between um, allegations and convictions, which is part of the problem, of course, because convictions are notoriously hard to, to come by. But in this case, this is a man who has been dead for almost 40 years, so he has no sort of right to reply here. Absolutely. So what we're going to do instead of, of, of concentrating on, on sort of that, the biographical reality of, of what may or may not have happened is look at his films for clothes and the misogyny that exists within the work that he's doing. Yeah, this is going to take us down this route that, you know, I have significant hesitations about with auteur theory um, and the fact that it's ever kind of possible to discern Just, um, one creative uh, person's 
imprint on any particular film. Um, so, yeah, we're probably going to have an argument. So stay tuned. <laughs> just to put this bit of context for you as well, Rachel's just stared at my chest while she said this because I'm wearing a, a Hitchcock T-shirt today. It's actually quite mesmerizing and I keep noticing new all things the, on it. His eyes are like shapes of birds and then there's a, a biplane on his forehead. It's very cool. Oh, and there's Psycho. Wow, <laughs> it is really cool. I'm going to take a picture of it and tweet it, guys. Uh, so if, you, if you're listening to this, uh, it'll be the last couple of days tweets. Um, yeah, so this is... Uh, <sighs> It is an interesting situation. So we just did an event for the uh, Psychoanalytic Film Club here in Belfast. Uh, and we were looking specifically at Spellbound. And Spellbound is one of a trilogy of films that is very definitely influenced by psychoanalytical film theory. Or, or psychoanalysis rather than psychoanalytical film theory. Um, yeah, it doesn't exist at that point. So we're not going to dwell today on Spellbound or Psycho, which are the first two in, in, in the trilogy. But I think we should definitely look at Marnie in terms of misogyny. Um, because Marnie is an incredibly difficult, problematic film, and that word that we like to use so often, yeah, problematic. Yeah, I think the P-word's going to make several appearances today. Um, so Marnie uh, is a film, if you've never seen it, about a woman who is basically a, a, a criminal. And a kleptomaniac, kleptomaniac, I think. Um, she steals some money, and uh, she escapes, changes her identity, uh, finds herself ensconced in the company employed by Sean Connery, who recognises her from somewhere else. And once again, Temptation rears its head and she steals some more money and he calls her out on it, captures her and basically um, covers for her under the condition that she marries him. Yikes. Marnie then turns out to be frigid, um, for, thanks to a childhood trauma. And uh, whenever she continuously refuses to uh, subscribe to the uh, expectations of amatory escapades. Sean Connery's character then forces himself upon her and she then tries to commit suicide. I think that's probably about all you need to know about Marnie in terms of the misogyny as a plot line to get well, you going. I think what you also need to know about Marnie in terms of the plot line to get you going, uh, spoiler alert, <gasps> is that he ends up basically and air quotes should be firmly implied here fixing her mm. and she lives happily ever after with him except does she because except does she of course but um the, the film ends with i want to go home with you yeah although to be fair there is an ultimatum given it's either you know <laughs> either you're gonna go to jail or you're coming back with me and she chooses she'd rather go back with him well he doesn't give her the ultimatum she says yeah. that she'd rather go back with him than go to jail yeah. which is it doesn't sound like much of a choice does it it's really not much of a choice it's as much of a choice as that character has at, at any stage i mean whether she is her actions are being dictated by past trauma whether her actions are being dictated by a man who has effectively sexually blackmailed her mm. into sort of sexual imprisonment for the rest of her life. Um, this is a, a woman with serious um, psychological issues stemming from a really difficult traumatic incident in her childhood. Um, and she is basically, she's left with a choice between um, actual physical prison or effective prison as the wife of a man who is more than happy to blackmail her to get what he wants. It's a very, very strange situation because when you look at Hitchcock's films, he's, he's clearly very... I mean, he does seem to be very aware about the psychological implications of the character's past and how that trauma has then remanifested itself in the present. Now, his relationship with, with, with sort of psychoanalysis is a bit love-hate. I mean, he clearly gets it 
He's fascinated by it, yeah. But um, publicly, he's sort of a little bit, a little bit dismissive of it. Yeah, well, a little bit dismissive of it. Yeah, I, I, exceptionally dismissive of it. Um, and he he continues to use, you know, he keeps going back to this idea that when he was a child, um, he was sent to the police station by a parent with a note and locked in a police cell for a couple of hours. Um, after which point he was told, "This is what happens to boys who are bad," um, and it traumatized him for the rest of his life. And he um, does say he doesn't understand at all why that happened because he was like a sheep. Yeah, <laughs> he, was, yeah. he was loved, um, and and he's he talks about how that um, has created this enduring fascination with the idea of the innocent man wrongly accused. Mm. Um, but then, in the same sort of sentence, he's then using that to dismiss psychoanalysis because he says the idea. Now he's vastly oversimplifying psychoanalysis, mm. by the way. At this point, um, he says the idea of psychoanalysis is that you talk about the trauma and you are cured of any sort of <laughs> problematic behaviour associated with the trauma. But I've just talked about this trauma and I'm still not cured, so therefore psychoanalysis is bunk um that said he's obviously really fascinated by the human element Mm. um of uh how you know these theories of the mind play out um in actual human interaction um and you said spellbind i know we said we weren't going to talk about spellbind but i think we need to sort of situate yeah we need to kind of situate a little bit hitchcock's relationship with psychoanalysis because this is a film um it I'm not going to say it feels phoned in, but it certainly doesn't feel like his heart's in it. Um, he's doing interesting things. He's working with with um, Ingrid Bergman, who's an actress that he obviously um, responds very well to, and he works with over a number of occasions. Um, but the, the the sort of the sense of you know this is my film in which I am fully invested feels a bit missing with Spellbound, and mm. I think a lot of that comes from the fact that this is not necessarily Hitchcock's film. This is Selznick's film. Yeah. Selznick is um, David O. Selznick, the um, very famous, massive Hollywood producer responsible for a lot of Hollywood Golden Age output. Um, and he's Hitchcock's producer. Hitchcock is under contract to Selznick at this point. And Selznick has just discovered psychoanalysis and he thinks it's the best thing that's ever happened. And he has this psychotherapist, um, Dr. Rome, and he... Just, he says to Hitchcock, right, we're making a film about psychoanalysis. This is what we're doing. Um, and he puts Dr. Rome in as the um, the psychoanalytic consultant on the film. Um, and Hitchcock spends his entire time just dismissing everything she has to say. I think it must have been a horrible experience for her. Because effectively, Hitchcock is being kind of strong-armed into making a film about psychoanalysis, which he doesn't necessarily want to make. Mm. Um, and I think, you know, Spellbound is interesting for a lot of reasons, but it doesn't feel that Hitchcocky to me. No, there are, there are moments, I think, of, of Hitchcock throughout that film. But then this is also this really strange sort of transitional period for Hitchcock. Where, yeah, that's true as well. You know, his stuff in Britain in the 30s actually feels quite, quite distinctive in its own way um but then he goes to hollywood and first it, it it sort of feels like he's treading water a little bit and then after this is when it really comes into zone because after this the next thing he does is notorious yeah uh which is sort of very definitely a hitchcock film and then uh after that it's rope which is as, just as hitchcockian as they come really i think i mean it's it's hitchcock in full hitchcock showing off mode but then i think the difference is is that this is right at the end of him not having the full creative control i mean mm. selznick is ultimately in charge and hitchcock sort of walks off at various points um it's only once he has control as producer that his work really really hones in its distinctive style but that said that the, you know there are kind of um elements as well there's still a misogyny that exists within this and there's still a play within the the way that the sexual relationships works i mean he is fascinated i think between um 
the way that one's uh, the sexual balances uh, sit. Yeah, well, I mean, there is this suggestion. And again, I think I've only encountered this um, in one of the, the many, many people who've been writing about Hitchcock over the years. From memory, I think this is only one person making the claim that um, his marriage and obviously, you know, this is a long standing marriage mm. to to Alma Reveal, um, who's, you know, that. By all accounts, you know, the, the, the woman who grinds him and the mm. woman who keeps him sort of stable and she looks after him and he's very much in love with her. I don't think there's any suggestion that he ever wasn't. But there is a suggestion that that marriage is largely celibate. Mm. Um, and I mean, you know, when you look at the facts of it, you know, this is the, the, he's a, you know, a, 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 he, he's a Roman Catholic mm. and he to, uh, to to the extent, you know, it's important enough to him that his wife converts to Catholicism to marry him. Mm. They have one child throughout this 60-year marriage, 50-year marriage, Mm. um, and she's born three years into the marriage. So I suppose that, you know, were one to look at kind of anecdotal evidence around that, one could see that why that might be suggested that this marriage is largely celibate. I I, Um, I guess part of it's also probably due to this morbid obesity. um, Possibly. I mean, you know, that notoriously has an influence on one's ability to, to... but I don't think I don't think the I, the idea is that it was ever Hitchcock's desire. Oh, okay, it was actually hers. Is the suggestion? The suggestion seems to be, yeah, that he has this kind of almost pathological sexual appetite. See, I've always that's not being satisfied, and that's what kind of spills into his films. And there's a lot of that. To be fair, that you when you start looking for it, you can kind of start to see what the you know the argument might be there. See, I've always sort of interpreted this as. It's not that he didn't have the desire, he just was unable. Um, so what you get, again, and combine that with sort of Catholic ideas of guilt and, and sex, is that what you get is, is, is someone who is proje- you know, projecting his own sexual, the ideas that he's projecting his own sexual fantasies out on the screen. Yeah. Um, but because he's not able to deliver, you know, there's always some kind of, um, th- there's a hesitation or something else, and it ends up, increasingly violent increasingly yeah it does aggressive. certainly increasingly violent i mean the the so the, the sexual fantasies if that's what i mean i think it's not even unfair to call the sexual fantasies being played out on screen towards the end of his career um they are increasingly violent towards their object i mean he does talk about um he talks about the idea of fetishism yes um right from very early on i mean he is well aware about the the, the fetish implications of it and uh, about playing out those fantasies mm. and about his characters playing out fantasies. I mean, he's not unaware of mm. the multi-textual possibilities and yeah, there. And this is the thing, and this is why, I mean, when when auteur theory, the item, okay, stop, take a step back. Auteur theory, the theory uh, of authorship, the, mm. the idea that... Um, one person, generally speaking, the director, should be most properly seen as the author of a film. Mm. Um, as and and that um, it's productive and useful for a film critic or a film theorist to look at that author's body of works and determine these themes and these kind of psychological obsessions that kind of bleed their way into their work, mm. which is one way of looking at film. Certainly, it's not something I have a lot of sympathy for because there are so many creatives involved in, in making a film. I think, you know, uh, particularly screenwriters, um, you know, the McCarthyist blacklists, um, were, were in force. It was it was disproportionately screenwriters that they saw as the author of films, yeah, but that's um, not really um, taken into account we, by auteur we, theory. We've just talked about Selznick as well, who yeah. very much is in auteur control. Auteur producer, of, yeah. yes. Yeah, the person who's putting the money up yeah. um, in Hollywood in particular has an extraordinary level of creative control that yeah. doesn't necessarily get acknowledged by auteur theory. 
But if one is going to look at auteur theory and the theory of authorship, mm. Alfred Hitchcock is a really useful example to look at because these these kind of thematic obsessions are you can find them throughout his body of work. I mean, there are th- those sort of fetishized um, glacial blondes, this this idea of the innocent man accused, um, the scopophilia, the idea of voyeurism and mm. the idea of the, the audience as being a voyeur. Um, it's woven through his work. And again, he's a director who's more than happy to talk about um how these things interact with his work um, to to a really large extent. I mean, he's a superstar director hmm. um, who perpetuates the cult of his own image to an extent that really we're not very familiar with with other directors. Um, and that also leads me to go, yeah, to what extent can we trust this? Because he is very aware of how to manipulate his own oh, incredibly. star if, image. If, if you, uh, I think I was talking about this the other week. If, if you watch the trailer for Marnie, um, you know, as he plays it out, there's a lot of humour there. There's a lot mm-hmm. of kind of... Uh, he's being slightly disingenuous. You know, he's also what people might call it a sex picture. Um, and he does talk about the fetishism. But also, he's kind of making a laugh of what are very serious situations. There is a disconnect um, between the severity of what's going on and, and also his how he promotes it. Um, I guess that gives him a bit of distance. It, it's almost, yeah. I mean, he's, he's almost asking the audience to... I don't know, I mean, is that part of a sort of male misogynistic attitude anyway to kind of be flippant about the fact that someone perhaps is being sexually abused? Well, I... I mean, there's a lot of really kind of... Once once you start to look at the, the information that comes out of the making of Marnie, hmm. um, various different people talking about the process of working with Hitchcock on this film, um, there are some stuff that gives you pause, certainly. I mean, the the sequence where Sean Connery's character forces himself hmm. on Tippi Hedren's character um, after she has explicitly said that she does not want any kind of sexual relationship ever. She just doesn't want to be touched, doesn't want to be looked at in that way. She doesn't even want to be kissed. Um, and the the original, well, the, the original screenwriter, there were three from memory, three screenwriters on this, and the, the middle screenwriter um, wanted to take that sequence out of the film and felt very strongly that that sequence didn't belong in the film um, and presented Hitchcock with two versions of the screenplay, one of which had the, the, the rape sequence and one of which didn't. Mm. And Hitchcock responded by firing the screenwriter because it was so important to him to have that sequence in the finished film to the extent that the the third and final screenwriter talking to the second I, this is getting really confusing but I can't remember the names of these guys so my apologies um, the third and final screenwriter when speaking to the second screenwriter said you basically wrote your ticket out that was his favourite sequence that was the sequence that made him want to shoot this film mm. and that I, whether or not that I mean, what one can draw from that is I think it's entirely subjective and obviously there's no way to know because the sequence is handled in a way that emphasises the trauma it, of it, the sexual assault. Brilliantly handled, I think. She she tries to kill herself after that. That It's yeah. so traumatic to this character who is a survivor. I mean, it's emphasised all the way through. This character survives against all the odds. Mm. This is what it takes to tip her into sort of suicidal action. Um, and so the, the trauma is very much 
um, placed front and centre here. But Hitchcock's reported um, sort of approach to filming that sequence mm. um, is to say to the cameraman, um, I want the camera tight in on her face when he sticks it in her. Mm. And that's, that's, that is purportedly quoted verbatim. It's a bit... I mean, when it's said, I mean, that, that description is so glib so functional i mean which again doesn't surprise you i don't even think it's functional i think it's salacious you see i kind of suspect that that hitch is i think he does get off slightly out of antagonizing people and about provoking people but what i would say is that regardless of what he said about how he wanted the camera to be positioned actually watching the sequence it's absolutely horrifying what he does do when you 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 see him coming towards her um and then you see a close-up of her eyes, and she looks absolutely terrified. And it stays there. And uh, you know, I know the director would have um, seen us more, shown us more of the interaction mm. between the bodies themselves. It would have made it slightly more salacious. It would have made it slightly sexy. Um, regardless of whatever he's actually then going to do, we see her. We see her terror, and we see her complete inability to move, which is then followed by the sequence where he discovers that she's missing. Yeah. You know, he wakes up. She's not there. Um, and then we see her body in the pool. And it is, I, I don't know if it's explicitly stated, but it's certainly very strongly implied that thereafter he leaves her alone. Yeah. Um, they separate bedrooms from then on and he makes no further attempt to, to kind of... Well, he's had his, I mean, I think part of the problem there as well is that he's also achieved what he wanted to achieve. He's had the possession of her body. He's had that mm. control. I mean, you know, his uh, object, which is simply to tame her. Let's use the horse analogies that are going mm. throughout that film. He's done it. He's got what he needs. He's he's broken her. He, he's li- they talk about breaking in a horse. He has literally broken in Marnie at that point. Um, so there's nowhere else for him to go. But I mean that misogyny. You know, it, it does come up again and again and again. Um, if you look at something like Frenzy from 1972, Hitchcock comes back to the UK to shoot this. But I mean, this is a film that's, that's very much geared towards. Uh, there's a lot of strangulation sequences, which are rather gratuitous, rather excessive, and again, increasingly violent. Um, you know his. I don't know how much of it is him pushing his own limits, but also how much is it's him having to change with the changing times of cinema. I mm. mean, as cinema gets is able to do more, he also does more. Well, we're certainly we're into the Hollywood new wave by that point, mm. which you know the cinema of, of sex and the cinema of violence. So, but then again, I mean, is it an adaptation or is it a freedom to 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 go that bit more gratuitous because there are a lot of directors of Hitchcock's generation mm. that simply stop working at that point or refuse to to adapt and refuse to become more gratuitous in their work because they see that as being sort of well gratuitous um i think i think that Hitch, hitchcock struggles a little bit with with this because i mean he's still doing films that are slightly old-fashioned at times it's something like the Trouble with Harry is not um, particularly progressive or modern. Um, you know, so his last film, Family Plot, is not just feels slightly out of place. You know, with with what's actually happening in cinema. Um, so I, I don't know. I think he's struggling to find his own way at this point. I mean, his films are not making the box office that mm, they did in the fifties yeah. and the start of the sixties. He has a moment, which is a great moment. And he makes some fantastic work in that time. But just as sort of everybody is finally recognizing that Hitch is great, Hitch is sort of just drifting off increasingly towards retirement. Well, you know, he's, he's 
pushing 70 really and he's into his 70s and, and his 80s really but still working i mean still actively yeah. pursuing ideas for projects and obviously you know he has a very definite public face mm-hmm. you know his tv series alone uh made sure that you know his face was known by countless generations plus you know he sticks his face over books over comic books things like this you know he... well that line sketch that he uses for alfred hitchcock presents has become iconic yeah which he does himself i mean yeah. he's, he's acutely aware of his own uh yes. on-screen persona yes. so it it is fascinating, but I guess it's it, uh, there's a lot of stuff here that we could unpack in future shows as well. But that's that sort of concentrate, I guess, on the, the the misogyny and the the problems of Hitchcock and watching him. And can we actually sort of praise him as a director whenever all these other allegations are there about his interest in women? You see, this is the problem that we we keep coming back to, isn't it? I mean, to what extent? Even thematically, you know. Yeah the way that he treats women within his films as objects to be pursued, to be followed, to be controlled, to be shaped. I yeah. mean, this is the other problem, isn't it? It's about how he shapes his women in his films. Yeah. Never yeah. mind how he shapes the actresses in his films. Yeah, I, I mean, I suppose for me, one of the, the key kind of problems that comes up for me in, in this case is that when we watch a Hitchcock film, mm-hmm. we're not watching a Hitchcock film as an example of 1940s cinema, 1950s cinema, 1960s cinema. We're watching a Hitchcock film as an example of a film that continues to be relevant and resonant today. And there are very, very few directors of that period that we do this with. I mean, it's argue Orson Welles is probably one of them. Um, even the likes of um, Hard Hawks or, you know, those guys. I mean, we're watching those as examples of the cinema of their time. Mm. We're not really doing that with Hitchcock. Um, and for a director that has this kind of problematic discourse woven through his films, we're not actually situating those as historical documents. We are saying that these films continue to have some kind of relevance today. Mm-hmm. Um, and by not actually kind of pulling that apart and by not looking at it directly, I do think we create a problem for ourselves if we're going to kind of re-evaluate and reassess what we want to to kind of hold up um and, and that's part of what this me too movement i think is 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 kind of obliging um the the filmmaking and the film consuming co- community to do is to say you know what well, everybody has the right to make art Mm. Of course, everybody has the right to make art. Everybody does not have the right to uh, hundreds of millions of dollars to put into their art and giving hundreds of millions of dollars to make art to a person who has a very troubling track record of how they interact with people in a position of vulnerability to them Mm. um, is kind of a tacit sort of, you know, acceptance of that behaviour. Now, we can't we can't have any kind of corrective with Hitchcock um, if that is what we want to do. There's no corrective um, uh, that we can sort of apply at this point because his, you know, his filmmaking career is over. His his life is over. Mm. Um, So I think we do. It's something that I I mean, I don't have an answer for this at all. Um, I just think it's a question that we need to be asking. Yeah, it's a difficult topic. It's a difficult kind of subject to get your head around, yeah. and and it's hard to kind of unpick the different aspects of it. And because he's a director that's so beloved, um, yeah. and, and so studied, and 
Rightly so. I mean, this, this guy is pioneering techniques that continue to be used today. He was a master of his craft. There's no question about that. Well, I mean, you know, regardless of the master's suspense, quite rightly, the way he's able to build up a narrative and our expectations and our interest in the story is, is phenomenal. Yeah, one of the first directors to recognise how sound can be used to create tension as well. I mean, he's working in, during the transition from, from silent mm. to sound, and he's one of the first directors not to throw a hissy fit about this and go, actually, this is brilliant. I can do amazing <laughs> things with this. I think, um, for me, Marnie's a bit of a misfire. Uh, Do you think so? I yeah. can't call it that. I can't. I, I mean, despite how, how troubling I think aspects of it are, I think Tippi Hedren's performance in that is absolutely astonishing. I actually have, don't have any problems with either of the performers, uh, either the two leads in that film. Um, and I don't really have a problem with the rape sequence because of its contextualization within it and how powerful it is as a, as a sequence. It's not overly gratuitous. It's not terribly sensationalist. It's sensationalist in the fact that you've got a rape through the middle, halfway through a film. Um, and the characters stay together, mm-hmm. which again, I guess, is something that happens a lot. Spousal rape is a serious issue. Yeah. Um, it is addressed there, and there are consequences to that, which is more than a lot of things would have done. You know, this is a time where. Well, spousal rape certainly wasn't even remotely illegal. There was no question of it being no. illegal at the time. So he didn't even commit a crime. He had the right to her body under law as it existed at that point, and until quite recently, too. Yeah, but what we do see is that there is an impact of that, and it's not always a good one. Yeah. Um, Shocker. Uh, Not always a good one. <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to talk about this in the context of the time. Yes. Obviously, we all know there's no, no yes. good outcome of that one. Um, so for me, it doesn't matter. But there's, there's nobody in that film I feel sympathetic for, really. Um, you've got a lot of... Whilst there's a reason why Marnie is the way that Marnie is, I cannot engage with her in any way and think, oh, Marnie, I care about you because I kind of don't because you're such a manipulative scheming individual anyway and your mother and her mother is manipulative and scheming and he is manipulative and scheming everyone is just basically out for each other out out for themselves i don't find her manipulative and scheming actually i find her cold Mm. um but i find that we are allowed enough access to what's going on beneath the surface by the end of it i mean we see Marnie descent, like regressed to childhood, mm. basically, um, in tears on the stairs of her mother's house. Um, and we hear her speak in the voice of a child yeah. because she's been so utterly traumatized by this. She is so very, very vulnerable. Um, and that vulnerability is allowed to the mother as well, although she immediately then kind of counteracts it by by kind of pushing Marnie away again. I don't know. I I do think we're given enough to feel sympathy towards Marnie? Um, I guess, I mean, there's stuff there that, that certainly lends her something, but I think for me it comes solely into the film that I struggle with it because I, by that point I've already felt so many other things to just mm. give me that little token at that point. It just doesn't work. Um, Can I ask you, mm-hmm. are, during the robbery sequence where she, she fleeces Sean Connery's office, mm-hmm. are you rooting for her? Um, I feel tension. Uh, okay, so, that's interesting because I I feel like I'm and I feel like the narrative wants us to be rooting for her. Yeah, no, I mean, the, the, but this is this part of the thing. Truffaut and, uh, talks to Hitchcock about this with, as well, the way that he's able to switch. But he talks about it specifically with Psycho, about how you constantly switch your support for the characters as the film progresses and you're teased out with more information. So you start off like not necessarily on Janet Lee's side, then you're for Janet Lee, and then suddenly you find yourself for Anthony Perkins' character. Oh, I was never for that character. And then you sort of find out more and you go like, no, 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 you've got yeah. to be caught. 
Um, so he does shift, and in those moments where you know that something is going to be revealed or somebody's at risk of being found out, of course you're on the edge of your seat. I mean, re- watching Rear Window for the first time, that mm. is a film I remember very physically, literally being on the edge of yes, my seat, gripping absolutely. it, hoping you know that they get out of that situation. But you're sort of more with them, and I think quite rightly so. Well, yes. I mean, she's she's it's you know, Grace Kelly versus a man who has murdered his wife. Mm-hmm. Whilst um, you're watching a guy watching her. Yeah, completely helpless to. I mean, he's, he's never. Impotent. Yeah, never more have we been placed as a cinema audience in the position of a character. I mean, that's what for me is is absolutely masterful about Rear Window mm. is that you know we have to basically embody the lead character. Um, we have to kind of map ourselves onto the lead character to some extent to be able to enjoy the, the story that's going on. Mm. But in Rear Window, we are literally placed in the, the perspective of watching through a frame something happen that we are really quite invested in and literally powerless to stop it. I mean, just it's so that that understanding of the psychology of audience ship before spectatorship was even sort of considered as a theory. It's so far ahead of its time. It's just magnificent. Mm. Also, James Stewart. Oh, James I would sure. watch him read the phone book. He's <laughs> one of my all-time favourite actors. I think when you sort of sit through some of those as well, you sort of see how the, the characters, uh, you know, the certain actors who come back again and again and again, you put certain things on them because of all your expectations and you watch how it changes. So for something like Vertigo, um, it's not a Jimmy Stewart. You want to be on Jimmy Stewart's side, but Jimmy Stewart in Vertigo is actually quite controlling and quite oh, manipulative. Yeah. Um, Although he, I still feel like there's a lot of sympathy because it's kind of it's yeah. Oh, you're being despicable. Oh, he's been he's been played Scotty, as well. Yeah. Scotty, you're being despicable, but we completely sort of we, we've been there with you while you have grieved the loss of this woman who was mm. becoming the love of your life. It's fascinating because actually, when I think about this now, you have a situation in Vertigo as well where actually you've got. Characters, in some ways, you can't really be um, 100% sympathetic with, but also who are playing off each other. You know, mm. we've, uh, it seems to be a thing that happens in Hitchcock films a lot, is that you've got people trying to take somebody else for a ride the whole way through in order to get whatever they want. And it's a question of who ultimately is going to be the one who's left standing. Have we done enough misogyny? Probably not. Have we done enough misogyny? Now, there's a question for the ages. Uh, yeah. Yeah, it's, so it's not that we wanted to necessarily um, say all Hitchcock films are misogynistic and bad. No, and it's not even as though we necessarily want to reframe Hitchcock as a misogynistic director. I just very strongly feel like we need to have this conversation. And I'm also not saying that we're not having this conversation. I think this is something that has to be present in somebody's mind when watching Hitchcock, even as we're watching it you know, as a modern example of a film that's just really enjoyable. Um, well, this is the problem, isn't it? Because we're constantly reevaluating films based on the era that we are currently living in. So as things change, as we change, as our attitudes change, we look back at the films slightly differently. Yeah, but we're still not really... I don't feel like we watch Hitchcock films as historical documents. I feel like we watch them as films that continue to be enjoyable on their own terms. Because they are. They are. They absolutely are. And because the filmmaking is nearly always, most of the time, Mm. pretty damn good. Yeah. So while they are, but the thing is, they are historical documents. They are Mm. products of their time. They're product of a products of a um, a a particular gender politics, Mm. Um, and not acknowledging that. 
or or the danger is that that gets lost i think mm-hmm. um in in just appreciating hitchcock for the master that he is i do wonder how much sometimes that hitchcock even thinks about these people as actual people because he i mean that reference to to actors as cattle you read him talking about his actors and you know he he will often reduce them just down to the boy the girl they, they get in the way. Basically, they're a necessary evil mm. um, that must be kind of manipulated in exactly the same way as one manipulates the lighting or the camera angle or the scenery to create the overall effect. It's just that they have ideas about how they want to do things, which the lighting and the scenery and the camera <laughs> angle don't have. I think he really, it, I think for him it's about the story. And I think that yeah. th- obviously there are certain elements that, that he's really interested in, whether he wants to admit to it or not. And he keeps on coming back to him and reworking him and reworking him. It's almost like he's trying to perfect it, yeah. possibly. Um, also, it's what's expected of him. There's a point at which Hitchcock, you know, he'd say this himself, there's the point at which he can no longer make a comedy or a romance. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when he tries, it doesn't work out mm. because he is the man of suspense. And that's what we want from him. And ultimately, the suspense in cinema and mainstream in Hollywood it seems to seems to often not uh, be about a sort of a woman in a peril situation and a man who's kind of being the lead protagonist and hero. Yeah, um, and I don't think there's any particular impetus to change that today. Yeah. Mm. Now that's a thought for another day. It certainly is. And on that note, we're going to leave this little Hitchcock Day special. Um, so uh, do enjoy some Hitchcock film, but probably not Marnie. No, no, watch Marnie oh God, and, and just be amazed at the fact that this is Tippi Hedren's second ever film. She has no formal acting training and she's absolutely magnificent in this film. She is brilliant um, in that film. I just, the Hitchcock film I get least enthused about. I don't, th- I think it's the Hitchcock film that you can least deny the gender politics of. So Ooh. it's right up there. It's confronting you and beating you over the head. So, yeah, no, I, I have a lot of time for Marnie. I recognise that it's an extremely difficult film um, and properly so. Mm. Well, there you go. That's me beating down with gender theory once again. Yes. Well done, Rachel. <laughs> <laughs> so it's what I live for. Uh, yep. Uh, if you've enjoyed this, uh, have a check us out on our website, www.cinepunked.com. You'll find us on Twitter and on Facebook. And we're also on Instagram at cinepunktfilm. Um, you can download this podcast and many, many more, either via our website or your favourite podcast provider. Um, until the next time, uh, it's uh, goodbye from me, Robert J. Simpson, and goodbye from Dr. Richard Kelly. Goodbye. <laughs> Thank you.